morning, everyone. Just before we turn to God's word, can I uh, just advise you something? Now, many of you will know that a couple of years ago, Ulsterville Presbyterian uh, Church closed. But over the last about a year, 18 months, it kind of reopened again as a drop-in and outreach center. And there are various things that happen uh, in that place during the week. Great work going on. Uh, but they've started opening on a Tuesday night from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. And uh, various local churches staff that drop-in centre. And we have been approached and asked if we would be willing to staff the fifth Tuesday of each month. Now, there are only about three or four months in the year that have five Tuesdays. But the first one's coming up on the 31st of January. And so if you would be interested in joining a small team from here of about five or six people and uh, just going along Gulsterville Presbyterian on the 31st of January for two hours to just meet people, make coffee, uh, help them with their English, help them use the internet, whatever, just make connections, then could you speak to me afterwards uh, and I'll share and, and let you know a little more information. If you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to Hosea chapter 4. It's page 902 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And uh, as you look that up, let me ask you a question. Ask you a question. What are some of the identifying features of authentic Christianity? What characterizes or should characterize the people of God? If you were to pinpoint three things, okay, and I'd love everybody to do this with me, okay? If you were to pinpoint three things that kind of mark or indicate genuine Christian faith, what would those three things be? Okay? So do that in your head, or if you have a pen, a bit of paper, but not on one of the welcome cards. Uh, if you want to write down just three identifying features of authentic Christianity, just do that for a second. Okay, if you do, you have a screen. And then what I want you to do is just hang on to those three things for a moment. Today we, we are going back to majoring on the minors, a, a new series where we're going to re-listen to some of the so-called minor prophets. And, and last week we started out with Hosea. And we were confronted by outrageous love. The outrageous love of Hosea for his promiscuous wife, Gomer, who kept sleeping around. And that powerfully illustrated for us and continues to illustrate for us the outrageous love of God for his unfaithful people who keep cheating on him. Now, I know some of you uh, really struggled and still struggle with uh, certain aspects of Hosea's story. And so, for example, the way that his kids were used by God via their names to communicate the desperate situation that the people found themselves in. Some of you struggled with that. This idea that these innocent kids were named, one daughter was named, not loved, and one of his sons was named, not my people. And that appears harsh, that these kids have to carry these names around with them. But even though there are difficult and uncomfortable parts to Hosea's story at particular times, it is ultimately a tale of incredible love, of incredible hope, because as we discovered, and as you actually step back, and not so much just home in on some of the specifics, but step back and try to get a sense of the bigger picture, you discover that God confirms that a new day lies ahead. That despite the people's infidelity, 
God's not going to walk away. Even though we had every right to abandon them, he was going to stick with them. And unbelievably, he was going to offer them a new beginning and a new identity and a new level of intimacy. As he said, you can be children of the living God. Well, today, what I want to do is pick up from where we left off, which is right at the beginning of chapter 4. But as you read the first half of the first verse, now we're not going to read a big chunk this morning, so as I say, if you can see a copy of God's word, that would be really helpful. But as you look at the first half of the first verse, you realize that this story nosedives again. After the kind of hope of chapter 3, it, it goes downhill. Because the reality of the people's unfaithfulness is about to be addressed and tackled head on. And therefore, in the next few chapters, and maybe for the rest of what I'm going to share this morning, there's, there's not a lot to celebrate. There's not a lot of hope. It's all pretty bleak material. And yet... What I honestly believe is these verses are incredibly helpful and so relevant to us here this morning, 15th of January 2011, because what they inform us of is this. What does it mean to live as the people of God? What does it actually look like to claim to be the people of God here and now? Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. And it almost seems that we've stepped into a court of law where God's the plaintiff. And he's got a complaint to bring against the defendant, Israel. And here's the charge. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now back to your three marks of authentic Christianity. Did any of those appear? You see, for me, this, this is so helpful because here, from God's perspective, are three critical indicators of genuine Christian faith. And so what I want to do is just unpack them for a moment. And the first is this, faithfulness. As God looked at the people, there was none of it. And the fundamental idea behind this word in this context is rock-solid reliability. This is about being trustworthy. It's about being the kind of people who are true to their word. You could also say it's about truthfulness. You see, the people of God and any Christian should be identified as those who keep their promises. People who honour their commitments. People who, who don't say one thing and then do something entirely different. You see, in Hosea's day, it turns out you couldn't believe or rely on a word that the people of God said. And that was tragic. And it still is. And secondly, God says there's, there's, no, there's no love and there's a couple of dimensions to this. To start with, there was no love or loyalty towards God. The people might say they love God, but there's no substance to it. 
And if you flick over to chapter 6 and verse 4, you find this really telling, and it's quite a distressing comment on God's part regarding the people's so-called love. Here's what God says. Your love's like the morning mist. It's like the early dew that disappears. In other words, it's short-lived. It's so transitory. It's kind of there in one moment, gone the next. It fades to nothing over time. And I personally find that so challenging. I can say I love God. But there needs to be tangible, ongoing evidence Intention is great. I intend to love God with my entire being. But as each day rolls out, as the sun comes up and shines, is my love for God visible, apparent and real throughout the day or by 10 a.m. has it evaporated and disappeared along with the morning mist and dew? In Hosea's day, as far as the people of God were concerned, there's just no lasting love. Second dimension to this charge relates to their lack of love towards other people as we're about to see the way the people of God and remember these were the people of God but the way the people of God were treating other human beings was absolutely appalling and it broke God's heart there was no respect for others There was no reaching out to people. There was no kindness being expressed amongst them. And as we all know from early on in the Old Testament and reaffirmed by Jesus in the New, the people of God are called to love their neighbours as themselves. To show mercy. To show compassion. And in Hosea's day, that was virtually non-existent. They just were treating other people with contempt, as we're about to see. And then the final charge, no acknowledgement of God. And again, there's a couple of dimensions to this. At one level, this was about the disturbing, diminishing lack of a knowledge about God. The people had lost sight of who God really was. They didn't value his character. Not only did they not value his character, but they had forgot about all that God had done for them in the past. They had forgot to tell their story to one another about God's blessing, about how God had acted to rescue them, redeem them, save them, bring them on, guide them, lead them. But they just forgot to tell those stories. And so they had lost an acknowledgement of who God was. So dangerous. And that's why for us today in our context, the Bible is something that we believe we should be constantly engaged with as a church and as individuals. Because it's through God's word that we discover who God is. That we learn more about his character. That we hear the stories of what God has done for us and continues to do for us. And therefore we do acknowledge God in our land. Second dimension is this. It's about commitment. There was no commitment to God. They were no longer acknowledging God as the only true God. As we discovered last week, the people were effectively jumping into bed with all sorts of other gods. They were no longer committed to capital G God and God alone. They were playing the field. 
And again, it's something that can so easily happen to us today. We're alongside God, alongside Jesus. We entertain other gods. We commit adultery. Where other things and other people become more important to us, they become the focus of our worship. And therefore, a song like Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and ever hope to be, that offers us a profound challenge. Challenge to commit and to recommit to God. And in Hosea's day, there was none of this. There was no acknowledgement of God. Their commitment, their devotion, their dedication to him was severely lacking. It's a chilling thought as God speaks to the people of God that he would say, there's just no faithfulness, no love and no acknowledgement of me. And then the court case moves on. Have a look at this with me. We're back to chapter 4 now. Because having highlighted these three things that were missing from their lives, he then points to seven things that they were doing that completely contradicted their identity. Verse 2, there is only cursing, lying and murder. They're stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Here is the evidence that they were showing no love to their neighbours. The way they spoke to one another, their language was atrocious. The way we speak reveals so much because it's, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And as God listened to these people talking about each other, talking about others outside of their community. He just couldn't believe what he was hearing. Again, challenging. How how have I spoke about people this week? People, my family here, how have I spoke about you? How have I spoke about people? How have I spoke about politicians? How How have I spoke about people this week? And he says, not only is your language atrocious, But you're lying to each other. You're taking life. You're committing adultery. In fact, do you know something he says? There are no boundaries. Anything goes. If it feels good, you're doing it. So much of their behavior, as you look down this list, is a violation of the ten. A violation of the ten words, the ten commandments, the ten guidelines that God had given them as to how they were meant to relate to each other. There's certainly a number of them in there. And so as a result of all this, of three things that were missing, of seven things that should have been missing, God says, do you know something? Our relationship's fallen apart. And therefore, all that is left for God to do, if you like, in this court case is to pass judgment. Which is what he does in verse 3 passes sentence because of this God says the land dries up and all who live in it waste away the beast of the field the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are swept away it's really interesting how punishment is announced here in terms of an ecological crisis that threatens not only human beings but all life on earth I'm I'm sure we could go somewhere with that but I have no clue where (laughs) Now, at one level, as you read these first three verses, they are chilling words. 
And if you only read them, and maybe even some of the rest that we will read in a moment. And this is one of the dangers of dipping into the Bible, because if you just dipped into Hosea at chapter 4 and read those first three verses, you could be left thinking, well, well, that that is it. Judgment's passed. Sentence issued. Game over. Hope is gone. There's no future for these people. And yet, Hosea 4, and in fact right through to Hosea 11, needs to be considered in its context in the entire book. But because of the first three chapters, and so if you weren't here last week, I need to, I need to sort of like say this very clearly. Because of the first three chapters of Hosea, we are vividly reminded that God keeps loving his people no matter what. And again, some of us struggle with that. It is a scandal that God should keep loving these people even though there's no faithfulness. There's no love coming back. There's no acknowledgement of him. They are ripping each other apart. Yet God says, I'm going to just keep loving you. That's what the Hosea and Gomer imagery is all about. Which means that as we read these verses, and as we listen to people who have failed, we should be all the more amazed at the sheer extent of God's love. And in some ways, should just find ourselves on our knees in worship. And as we reflect on our own lives, and maybe some of us have been doing this, particularly at the start of another new year, but if we reflect on our own lives through the filter of Hosea chapter 4, Some of us might think, you know, if I'm honest, some of this describes me, where I'm at, before God. That's why this is so relevant. And if you're here this morning, and there is a sense, or there was last week, of, yeah, this does connect. Then two things. One, be honest with God where you're at. Be honest about the level of your commitment and about the way you're living your Christian life. And if God has been speaking to you through this prophecy, recognize that. But secondly, never lose sight of the outrageous love of God that hasn't changed one iota in its intensity towards you, despite what you've done. There is hope. There is a way back. There is the possibility of a new start. There is forgiveness. And so, yes, the people of Hosea's day and we need to be challenged about our complacency. But we also need to be reminded of God's outrageous love. And as we're reminded of God's outrageous love, that should then inspire us to address our complacency. Let's get back to the story just for another five minutes or so. Because from Hosea chapter 4, if you just scan chapter 4, verse 4 on, right actually to the end of chapter 5, God just keeps challenging the people about their behaviour. But as you reach the beginning of chapter 6, and if you, if you would turn over to that for me, as you read the first three verses of chapter 6, you think to yourself, brilliant, these people have got it. 
they seem to have reached a place where they've listened to Hosea and they've listened to God and they've decided to take them seriously. And therefore, what you read in those first three verses of chapter 6 appears to be a prayer or a song of repentance. Here it is. The only time in Hosea the people speak. Come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Those sound to me like great words. Great words of remorse, of regret, of coming back. Great words that seems to imply that their love for God is being refreshed. But you see the minute you start thinking like that, you're brought back down to earth with a bump as you read verse 4. Because what does it say? Or what does God say? O Israel. Or O Ephraim. O Israel and Judah. What should I do with you? And when you read that, you realize there's frustration in God's voice. God knows all too well what's going on here. And as God listens to their words, God can see that they're just that. They are just words. Empty words. God, being God, knows all too well what's going on behind all the talk. You see, God sees through the way things appear. He's the one looking into our hearts. And now we're back to something, and this is where that verse comes in again, because God said, you know something, folks? What am I going to do with you? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. And so, although the people might have been saying all the right things, performing the ritual, showing up, it reminds us that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And so what does God go on to say? And here's where I want to finish. God says, do you know something, folks? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I desire acknowledgement of God, not your burnt offerings. And it's not that God doesn't want to hear us. It's not that God doesn't want our sacrifices or our burnt offerings and whatever the equivalent of those are for us today. It's just that He wants it all to be real. He wants it to come from the heart. And as you engage with God's Word and as you read the prophets, you discover this requirement comes through time and time again as God observes the ritual. As God listens to all the religious talk, many of it sounds great. God says, listen, you honour me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And that's what was going on here. And when you come into the New Testament, what I find fascinating is that Jesus expresses exactly the same sentiments. And in fact, he quotes Hosea 6, verse 4, twice. The first time it happens... Jesus finds himself being criticised for the company he keeps. One religious group want to know, why is it Jesus spends all his time with and eats with all the wrong kinds of people? Sinners. 
and tax collectors. Jesus hangs out with them. Why does he do that? And they're critical of Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, listen, who is it that needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I am after mercy, not religion. It's all about the heart. Second time it happens, Jesus and his disciples have grabbed a bite to eat on the Sabbath. Again, religious crowd are horrified. So hung up on the rules. And so they have a go at Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You would have not condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's your heart I'm interested in. It's all about the reality of your worship. The integrity of it. And so what did this mean for the people in Hosea's day? What did this mean for the religious community in Jesus' day? What does this mean for us this day? It means that the condition of this is critical. It means that God is still looking for reality. It means that if we are going to grow in our faith, we've got to be honest with God and before God. And so as we close, I've got three questions. Based on trying to pull this all together before we come to communion to finish. What's missing as I look into my heart? Faithfulness? Am I trustworthy? Am I a person of my word? Is love missing? Love for God, love for other people. Mercy and compassion. Is an acknowledgement of who God is missing? What's there that shouldn't be? Is there sin I need to confess this morning? And what's essential? What is it that God desires this morning of us? Mercy. Reality. Integrity. May we be those kind of people. Amen.